Our message comes to us today from the book of Acts, chapter 7, beginning in verse 54. This is after the speech of Stephen to the high priest. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stomped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is a blessed word from our Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, this account of Stephen's life is uh, one that, uh, thank you, Grace, and one that you and I most likely in its extreme form will never be able to identify with. Most likely no one will approach you and uh, 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 want to kill you or engage in the act of killing you because of your faith. However uh, that uh, true that reality may be, there will be those who will... Uh, will come against you. If it is for your faith, that is a real possibility that you will endure some kind of persecution, some kind of belittlement or bullying because you choose to follow Jesus. That is very real and very possible. Or it could simply be a problem that you encounter that just won't go away. It may be the nagging boss. It may be the person who talks about you, who derides you, who will not leave you alone. It could be the bully. It uh, could be a family member who has it out for you, the reality is that all of us at some point in our life will face a situation that just won't go away. One of the things I don't want you to do, there are two this morning as we look at this passage. One is to go, oh, that's about Stephen. I, I'll never go through that, so this doesn't apply to me. The second uh, that, uh, thing I don't want us to do in our study of Acts or in any other study in the Scripture, the second thing we must not do is to uh, resort to what I call moralism, meaning that we see somebody who appears to be uh, uh, doing things well and we want to, quote, be like them. We are never called in Scripture to hold a comparison of someone else and make that our standard. That is never the call in Scripture, nor can it be now. And so the question then comes, what do we learn from Stephen? Last week, he's on trial for his faith. 
he makes a grand speech, a historical speech of the history of Israel. He calls them to task. He calls them out and calls them names. And he says to them that they crucified the Messiah. At that point, they rush at him and they drag him outside the city. And that's where we find him today. But it is Stephen's response that grabs our attention. It isn't what they do so much as how Stephen responded to what they did. And I would say to you this morning that you are sitting here encountering a myriad of, of, of situations, a myriad of problems, uh, of things that if we were to see them scroll across the screen this morning, we all might become weary or wonder how you're sitting here and how you're making it through. The question for you this morning isn't what problem are you facing. The question facing us this morning is how will we respond in it? And Stephen is described as being, while the stones are coming at him, literally full of the Spirit. Not full of fear, not full of anger, not full of a myriad of other things you and I might think at that point he could be full of. He is rather full of the Spirit. And so then what does that do with him? And what would it look like if you individually chose to respond to your situation also full of the Spirit? We discover three uh, results of, 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 of being full of the Spirit, and this is personal. Uh, number one, you will see God as he sees himself. Look at verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When you're full of the Spirit, you will naturally look up. Not out at your problem, but you will look naturally toward God. The Spirit who came to live in you when you were born again, that Spirit will always cause an upward, Godward look. Stephen looked up full of the Spirit and saw the glory of God. That word glory is uh, where we get our word for weight, the weightiness of God, the otherness of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the omnipotence of God, the omniscience of God, all the words that you and I could muster to describe God. Uh, his glory is that. Stephen looked up and saw the glory of God as stones are coming toward him that will end his life. A glimpse of the glory of God. I would say that you and I can see him and we can see his glory, but only when we're filled with the Spirit. And by implication, the word full means nothing else is in there. You can't be full of two things, can you? You are full of something. And that is when Stephen sees God. 
Remember, it was a couple years ago, I've shared this with you, that I was traveling to Fruitland, a small school that trains uh, preachers and pastors and, and other folks seeking to serve God in ministry. And I'm traveling to Fruitland to preach. And that morning, God in his grace just settled down in my little Jeep. And, and, and by the time I got to my exit, I'm just weeping as the Spirit is moving and working and as he is just doing something in me. And I'm thinking to myself, everybody around me is going to think I'm an idiot. I'm just driving down the road, a weepy mess. I get off the exit and think, now you better dry it up because you really are beside people who are going to see you, but I can't. The Spirit just feeling me to overflowing and me listening to a song again and again and hearing from the words of that song that God simply knows me by name. That's what the song was about. And just that feeling me. I remember getting there to speak in chapel and so full of the Spirit as I was speaking in chapel of looking back on that and knowing that God spoke that day. It, it will not always be super emotional. It could be a, a calm uh, peace that you experience, but when you are full of the Spirit, you will see God as he sees himself. Stephen also saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, this is significant because this is the Jesus they killed. So when, G when Stephen says, I see Jesus, this now becomes an indictment on him. They have tried him uh, for blasphemy. Now he says to them, I myself with my eyes see Jesus. And all of a sudden they're faced with stones in their hands. Do they continue to throw them? Because either they will throw those stones and kill Stephen right? He will die. They'll kill Stephen or they will pull back and go, maybe we were wrong and maybe Stephen is right. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And I would just say to you this morning, this is what Jesus does to every single person. Anybody who encounters him, if you're watching by Facebook or by YouTube, or maybe it's Wednesday or Thursday and you're just now watching this, you will be faced with a decision. What will you do with the Jesus I preach? What will you do as you're sitting here or sitting in the parking lot? What will you do with Jesus? C.S. Lewis in that famous quote in Mere Christianity writes this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And here it is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That's where we come. That's where we come. Somebody sent me pictures of of where the Jehovah's Witnesses have been to their home, left all kinds of materials this week. Here is the difficulty with the Jehovah's Witnesses' position. They look at one who claimed to be God and say he was merely a teacher. You cannot intellectually do that. But then Stephen does something that according to my study, so you can check me on this, right? You can check me on this and do. And if I find out that I've missed it, I will come back here and say I missed it. But according to my study, Stephen does something that no other person does ever in the New Testament. He refers to Jesus as the son of man. Now, Jesus referred to himself as that often. It's Jesus' favorite word for himself. His favorite self-designation was son of man. Why does that matter? Check the screen out. You'll see Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is having a vision. And in this vision, he says, I saw, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a what? Son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." All right, so here's what I happen to think. I happen to think that Daniel 7 was fulfilled when Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended. I believe that when Jesus ascended and he got to heaven and when he did, all of the angels, I think, stood back because I don't know if it has ever occurred to you, but prior to Jesus coming to earth, he never had human skin. He never had human skin. He became one of us when he was born through the womb of Mary. And I just happened to wonder when Jesus ascended to heaven and he had this body like yours and like mine, did the angels come up to him? Did they approach him? Did they want to touch him? Did they look at the scars in his arms and the scars in his feet? Did they want to see the wounds in his side? Did they lean in and was there a ceremony where this Jesus left the way he left, but now he has come back and when he does, he comes back as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because when that happens, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. All right, so let's ask Jesus what he thinks about this. Let's go to Luke or Mark, Mark 14, 61. But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. He's on trial. He he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. You will see who? The son of man. This is Jesus talking, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is saying, before I come back, I'm going to be seated in this place. 
And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? There was something about that statement that was so blasphemous, that was so ridiculous to their ears that they tore their garments and they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus says he's the son of man. Stephen says he sees the son of man. This is remarkable. Why? Because if you go back to the book of Daniel, when he is the son of man, all of a sudden the gospel goes to all nations, peoples, and languages. What happened after Stephen was stoned? When Stephen died, the Greek-speaking Jews fled Jerusalem. And when they did, the gospel went up to Samaria. We'll talk about that next week, but it went up to Samaria. And it began to spread like Daniel said it would. Stephen, full of the Spirit, saw God as he sees himself But secondly, when you're full of the Spirit, you will see yourself as God sees you. Look at this. But they cried out, the Sanhedrin, this distinguished court, with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, why did they stop their ears? Well, they were trained to do that. Pharisees and Sadducees, if they ever heard blasphemy, would stop their ears. Because to keep their ears open would be to affirm what they were hearing. It would be like you changing the channel on the television. You're not going to be part of that. They stopped their ears. But then we see they're out of control. They rushed together. Do you guys remember that story Jesus had traveled over and he found a demon-possessed man in the region of the Gadarenes. This man was so demon-possessed that they would uh, uh, chain him and his demon so powerful that he would break the chains. And so Jesus cast the demons out of that man and sent them into a herd of pigs. And when the demons went into the herd of pigs, the pigs rushed headlong into the water and drowned. That word for rushing that this court does is the same word used to describe those pigs. No control over themselves, rushing into the water. This Sanhedrin court is out of control. This is an emotional mob scene. There is no trial, not recorded. Luke is detailed, who wrote the book of Acts. There's no trial. There's no verdict. And historians say that during this time in Israel's history, the Sanhedrin did not have the authority even to exercise any form of capital punishment. This is a mob, emotionally charged scene. There is no justice here. And and Stephen Stoning doesn't fit how they did stone criminals. 
Because here's how it happened. It's gruesome. Just be warned. They would take the man who was to be stoned and strip him naked, walk him to a cliff and push him over. They needed about 10 to 12 feet from where they stood to where he would land. When he landed, always on his chest, then they would, if it took more than one, find the largest boulder they could and roll it to the edge of the cliff to where it would land a deathly blow to his head and he would be dead. That was a stoning. His isn't this. Stephen is never recorded as his clothes being taken from him, but the ones stoning him take their clothes off down to evidently base layer because they give them to Saul. Stephen evidently is never pushed down because at one point he's standing, at another point he's kneeling. Evidently, this is the kind of stoning that you and I probably have thought stonings look like all our lives. Grab up stones and throw them as hard as you can at someone. Stephen does not die right away. In addition, the eloquence of Stephen's speech, the fact that he spoke Greek, would put him in a level with Paul. They most likely were friends at one point on the same side. As a matter of fact, Stephen most likely knew more than one person in the Sanhedrin when he addressed them. These were people he knew throwing stones at him. But it is what he said that is so telling. Uh, he said, In Lord, receive my spirit, is what he said. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar to you? Let's go to Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Well, did Stephen learn this at the cross? No. There's no record of him being nearby. Where did he learn it? Psalm 31, 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Well, what was Psalm 31 5 in a, in a Jew's life? It was their bedtime prayer. Yeah. It was their bedtime prayer. We have it. You taught your kids it. I'll start it. You'll finish it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's Psalm 31.5. What does this say to us? 
You see, Stephen's death has a way of drawing very little attention to itself, but shining great light on the death of Jesus. When Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit to the Father, what I don't want you ever to miss is that Jesus has always been the Son and God has always been his father. That never hasn't been. Jesus has always been his dad's son. And when on the cross he said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was saying, now I lay me down. Lest you think that the father was unmoved by the death of his son, imagine holding your son or daughter in their last moment and them looking at you and the last words you hear are now I lay me down to sleep and they die. Jesus, in his dying moment, was his father's son. Stephen, in his dying moment, was also his father's son because Jesus, in his dying, took Stephen's sin so that he could pray the same prayer Jesus prayed from the cross and it really be true. And so can you. As a matter of fact, if you look at the end of the verse, Luke writes, and Stephen fell asleep. When you're full of the Spirit, you will see yourself as God sees you. And when you know Christ, you're his son, you're his daughter. Once Jesus laid down his life for us, he, he lay down in the Father's lap. Stephen saw God's glory, his greatness, but he also saw God's love, his grace. When you're full of the Spirit, you will see God as he sees himself. When you're full of the Spirit, you will see yourself as God sees you. But thirdly, when you're full of the Spirit, you will see others as God sees them. You will see others as God sees them. Look at verse 60. And falling to his knees, he, Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Who is this? Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. All right. Jesus had seven sayings from the cross. 
So there's seven of them from the cross, but only two of them are prayers. And Stephen prays both the prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep, and Lord Jesus, don't hold this against them. What is that? It is two things. It is a dying man's warning and a dying man's prayer. It is a warning. What you're doing is wrong, and it is a prayer. Lord Jesus, don't hold it against them. And Stephen fell asleep. Much has been made as to why Jesus stood up. Because if you remember, in Mark's account, Jesus said, I'll be seated at the right hand of the Father. So, so Jesus, why are you standing up? And scholars have surmised of, of different reasons Jesus is standing up. One possible or plausible reason in Stephen's case is that he's making a case that I will stand as the judge and I will exact judgment on your kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin. So some scholars say Jesus stood up as Stephen is dying to say, listen, Stephen, I've got you, justice will be served. Others say Jesus stood up as Stephen was dying to welcome this first martyr, this first person who died for him and for the gospel and died for the good news and died for who Jesus is and what Jesus would do. I do not know, and I'm glad we don't know. Why? Because I think it gives way for a bit of what I call sanctified imagination. It gives us the capacity to wonder this as I have stood by the bedside of those who have died, who have gone to be with Jesus, some who were just this big as their life ebbed away from them and others whose bodies had shriveled down to almost nothing and others who were robust and strong and seemed to have so much left in their life. This is what I imagine happening every single time. This is where I live and what I think based on what happened to Stephen. I honestly believe that every single time one of the father's kids comes home, I believe Jesus Christ stands up, looks over at the father, and it is the last moment of mediation, the last moment of intercession that he makes for that saint who is going from this life to that one, and he stands up as if to say, here comes another one, here comes another one, I died for him, I died for her, welcome her in. Come on in. Welcome them in. And I believe that Jesus incessantly stands and welcomes all those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. I believe that it is glorious in heaven as the angels peer over the balconies of heaven and go, this is why he left. Tony Miller, Tony Miller is why he left. And when Tony, baptized today, raises up and lives forever with Christ, I think Jesus will stand up and welcome him in. And so will he welcome you. What a glorious thing it is. 
Oh, it is so sad for us on this side, but what a glorious thing it is when someone meets Christ. Stephen sees God as he really is and sees himself as God sees him, but he sees others as God sees them. Years ago, I heard a sermon that stuck with me. I've referenced it before. It's the title of this sermon called Joe Jones. The sermon stuck with me. It's a memorable line. But, but there's an old sales saying that goes like this. If I can see Joe Jones through Joe Jones' eyes, I can sell Joe Jones what Joe Jones buys. In other words, I, if I crawl in him, I, I, I can figure out what to sell to him. Well, this pastor took that and really made it a centerpiece of his sermon, and he added a couple of statements. If I can see Joe Jones through God's own eyes, I can help Joe Jones his potential to realize. And then he took it one step further, and he said, if I can see Joe Jones through God's own eyes, I can help Joe Jones before Joe Jones dies. Josh Hayes, who used to be on our staff here, now serving up in Boone, used to talk about putting a rock in our shoe, meaning that when you stand up to walk out of here, it irritates. Here is the irritating rock that I'm leaving in your shoe today. Who is your Joe Jones? Who, who do you need to see through God's own eyes? Who and what would change in your interaction with them if you did? How might you pray differently? Talk differently. Lord, Jesus, you went down into the grave that Stephen may come up and in his death see your face. And so it is with us. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you for empowering such a one as Stephen. And thank you for inspiring Luke to write it down. Who is our Joe Jones? Who is our Joe Jones? Who is our Joe Jones? I'm convinced you'll show us. And we will both pray and perhaps warn them as Stephen did by one in the same prayer.
your name. Amen. A couple of things as you leave today, different ways that you can go. If you're a first-time guest, we want to know who you are. We have those every week. Our guest tent is not set up this morning, but our guest welcoming space is in the front lobby. We'd love for you to join us. If you're not in a life group, but you'd like to be over here where David is standing at Next Steps, or if you have questions about Next Steps, head that way. If you're interested in Senegal, then head right out the door to your left through the breezeway into room number one, and James will be ready uh, to, to greet you and talk about that trip. It's been good to be here, hasn't it? It's been good. If you're joining us online or by YouTube, we're honored uh, to have you uh, by Facebook or YouTube or in the parking lot next door. I was just privileged to greet and see folks, and so good to have you uh, joining us in that way. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Go in peace. Have a great rest of your Sunday.